City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How are you? Um, yes, well, if you're asking the listeners, we can't really hear them, but if you're asking me, I'm okay. Uh, Corey, that's Corey Green. I'm Kevin Healy. This is City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month. It is. And so we've got no specific subject today, but we have got two interviews. The first one, Corey, you've lined up, haven't you? The, yes, yeah. um, Aunty Jenny Munro. Um, I haven't succeeded in waking her up yet, but <laughs> we'll give it some time. Yeah, we'll get her about quarter past or so. 20, yeah, yeah, hopefully. And um, you've got... We've got Richard Dennis, the director of the Australia Institute, coming on in the second half of the program, about 20 to 9, uh, to talk about uh, an article he wrote yesterday, in fact, in the Financial Review. He has a fortnightly column there, and he had an article about how how um, the resource industry is being heavily subsidised by governments. And he, he also... Uh, refutes the argument that we've got lower, the lowest prices ever for iron ore. He points out they were much smaller a few years ago and that uh, the argument's a bit of a furphy. But mm. we'll talk about that. Plus, there was another report yesterday. People would have seen, I think, an economic report that came out from a, a more liberal-type think tank that, that said that there's a million people living in poverty in Australia. It was on the front page of The Age yesterday and didn't get any mention at all in the Herald Sun, mm-hmm. nor the Fin. I found the fact that it wasn't mentioned in the Fin Review interesting and that they don't talk about people who are living in poverty. They talk about how the rich can get richer, and so they had all sorts of stories about that. Uh, but um, And I think the million is probably understating the situation, actually. Mm, but probably. Anyway, yeah. And so I'd we'll like talk to, to him about that, yeah. And I'd like to back announce that song. That was the Dead Kennedys with Kinky Sex Makes the World Go Round. And today, in honour of Anzac Day, we're going to have all anti-war songs. Oh, very good, very good, very good. And speaking of anti-war... Um, the only war that actually really does happen is class war. Mm. And, um, and of course, well, related to that, just as a, in, it's not in passing because it's, it's more than in passing, but on Friday, the day before, where they celebrate uh, the capitalist war, the, is the second anniversary, of course, of the um, Rama Plaza. Um, Rama Plaza, whatever it's called, Rama Plaza, the, the, the wall, the building that collapsed in Bangladesh anyway, that, um, that killed 1,100 workers, mostly young women. Uh, and there's a, there's actually going to be a, a commemoration at the Eight Hour Monument near Trades Hall on Friday at 4:30, I think it is, about about that commemorating that. But um, again, that's you know that's a that's a classic example of of sheer murder in the class war, and mm. I think that's a good example. It, that what the way Bangladeshi workers and they were just 1,100 was probably the biggest, but there have been other mass killings in fires etc. when workers were locked in, and. It shows that capitalism unrestrained, that's what it wants. It wants workers to virtually get nothing, in fact, nothing at all, if possible, mm. uh, while um, it makes all the profits. I mean, it, it, the profiteering is what it's all about. So the cheaper, the better, the cheaper, the labour, the better. So the, wa- the wages and conditions that workers here have, which is better than that, are only there because of their unity, their struggle through unions, etc. And yet we find these days unions being excoriated by capitalism, etc., and told they're clinging on to past, uh, past shibboleths like class struggle, etc., uh, class war. Um, and if you mention class war, you're some sort of villain in this society, and they practice it day and night. 
but ne- surely, non-stop. Surely so, the, that's why, why you're talking cup of tea? Yes, please. Surely the ruling classes have always said these sort of ridiculous things about the union. Well, you know, we just have to know to ignore it. I mean, see, we know who's side we're on. We do. <laughs> we certainly do. So Thank that's that one. Of course, the war one. I mean, on war this week, we're seeing... I, I'm interested because the Herald Sun every day has little kids. I always have little kids now, and they bring oh, them yeah. out, and they love... You know, they they, they honour, etc. And the kids always just say, we, we appreciate what they did for us. And I keep thinking, I wish they wouldn't beg that question, because what did they do for us? I mean, if you look at the places we invaded, if war is about either attacking someone to take them over or defending your territory against that, which essentially is what war mm. traditionally hasn't been, I think. So, I mean, it, obviously we can't say we were defending Gallipoli. No, no. and we that's we not invaded in Turkey, we invaded Afghanistan, we invaded Iraq, we invaded Malaysia, we invaded Korea. You go through, well, we invaded South Africa in the Boer War, in fact. Mm. Um, you go through all those wars. There may have been some justification fighting Nazism. Let's... That that's a possibility, but then again, it's questionable because that was a direct result of World War One, the Depression, and all the things that happened anyway. Mm. There's a there's a there's a direct line between them. But unless we believe that Afghans or Iraqis or Turks or Malaysians or Koreans or Boers would now be running Australia, mm. um, what did they do for us? And I'm not don't want to knock them because they were mostly working class cannon fodder. Mm. defending capitalism. So let's not knock the young people who who went there believing they were doing the right thing. But mm. but oh Vietnamese Vietnam could be run overrunning us as well, I suppose. But but if they if that's not the case, if you don't believe they would have today been overrunning us, then what did they do for us? Mm. Right. Silence. I had an uncle, um a great uncle actually. Not just great, but he was also um of an older generation. And um, he was the most uh, he was the most kind man, and really just gentle and softly spoken. And and the one thing that I really loved was desserts. And I didn't know until his funeral that he'd actually um, fought in the Australian Army. And I like I can't imagine him. I don't know. It just really upset me that he did that because it, I can't imagine him ever. You know, killing someone mm. and ever it was he in WW two or somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he must have gone in with the wholehearted belief that he was doing something good for Australia. I mean, that's the only reason he could have gone. But it turns this kind, gentle man into a murderer for, you know, for what? I mean, it's just mm. it's just so upsetting. Yeah, and of course, as they, I know, I know that people said it on um, Solidarity Breakfast, it was mentioned last Saturday morning, that while we're honouring killing and war this week mm. and dragging out all the usual suspects to say how wonderful it is, uh, they they haven't mentioned the fact that twice in that period the Australian people rejected conscription for that war. Um, interesting, isn't it? Mm. And on, on class war, I, I just I noticed you've got next to you over there, I don't know if you brought it in deliberately or not, but there's a, a front page of last Thursday's Herald Sun, $640 million for nothing, and there were six pages about the terrible, terrible... Um, perfidy of David Andrews because he won't build this freeway and and the same Herald Sun of course that attacked Gillard for breaking a promise over climate change is Mm -hmm. now attacking him because he won't break a promise that he wouldn't build the thing isn't it terrible and Abbott's saying the same thing Uh, but 640 million for nothing page after page of how we're wasting money and how we've collapsed and given into this to this company and we've done all you know the terrible things we've done now, the very same day, you know, payout could soar, massive bill, you go over the page and it's, um, 
It's mad promises and cynical lies. It just goes on and on. Mm. Now, you turn to the Financial Review on the very same day, Corey, and the front page headline, Len Lease gives in on 1.2 billion compo. Opening paragraph, the new Victorian Labor government's threat to legislate a 1.2 billion penalty clause out of existence but not building this, the state's major infrastructure project <laughs> has forced developer Lend-Lease and several European builders to walk away with no compensation. Now, hmm. uh, It's the, almost like they're not getting the paid story? for doing nothing. Is it the same story? Uh, is that, wait, uh, is that the couple of steel that if you don't do anything, you don't get paid? Oh, no. No, okay, no. no, no sorry, no. I got confused no, there. No, no, no. Unless you're a capitalist. If you're a worker, you, I mean, you've got to, got to differentiate. Yeah, no right. No such thing as class struggle or class war here, but you've got to differentiate. Right, but, right. But the Herald Sun story and the, and the financial review story don't seem to me to be about the same thing. I don't know. It's hard to explain it. Oh, well, I'm, I'm hoping you could, but obviously... You, well, I think we, we need someone smarter we, in here. We need a... We do. We, we need do. a... A member of the David ruling Shepherd, class. David Shepherd, who, who does reports for the government and what to cut. We you know, David. I bet if someone could understand quantum mechanics, they might be able to understand also the Sydney Morning Herald and yeah. any of the major kind of newspapers. So maybe we need Stephen Hawking in here to Steve. explain, um, you know, fundamental contradictions. That's right. We've got wheelchair access from the back here. We can, you can get him in. Okay, that's good. That's yep. good. Another report this week. Last week we, we talked to people, we, know, we talked to Jeff Fiedler from the Housing for the Aged Action Group about Mornington Peninsula Shire cutting staff with their new CEO, swinging the axe, as the report said, and uh, people who who deal with, uh, with, with older people and with people with, you know, just helping people who have, have problems uh, were being axed. Well, this week we've had a report that from the Health Department um, hospitals um, in northern Austin, St V's have been named and Panch and uh, various community health centres. Uh, there's a program where hospitals send community health workers, you know, physiotherapists, occupational, all sorts of things, social workers, etc., mm. out to community health centres where they provide that sort of assistance, which... Which preventative prevents, medicine. It's preventative medicine, which keeps people out of the bulging emergency departments at hospitals, and they keep saying that should be the aim of it. Well, they're now sacking all those workers, or they're retrenching them, and there's, it's a bit uncertain as to whether they're going to go back into the hospital system and just work in there or, or actually be sacked. But nonetheless, taking people away from where they're providing preventative medicine seems mm-hmm. to me to be quite stupid. We did try to get someone to talk about that today, but we couldn't get onto them yesterday. But we will follow up on that story. But it's a, it's a pretty major one because it's, again, a following up where we're seeing services that help. And a lot of, most of the patients are older people or people with you know, disability, dis- dementia, all those sort of things that need that sort of help. Mm. But by getting that sort of help, they're not falling into hospital or into the emergency wards. And mm. um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an invaluable service, but it's being cut and it just seems to be, yet again, quite myopic because uh, the end result is going to be more costly in the long term. Yeah, well, I mean, the saying prevention is better than the cure. Indeed. That, I mean, that's not just a saying, you know. The, a stitch in time saves nine. Let's come up with lots of uh, aphorisms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it really, really, really does save not only um, people's health, but money to, um, you know, actually actively fund preventative medicine, you know. Mm. Yeah. So we'll certainly keep keep on that one and follow it up, but it's, uh, it's a pretty major one. Um 
Just before we go to our first guest, one other one I did want to mention this week is it was on Monday it came out. There's a motion going to the Labor Party Federal Conference this year from a number of unions which would commit a Labor government to force big companies to hand over their confidential financial information to unions during wage negotiations. And oh, you, okay. you, unions say, well, you know, a problem now is, I'll just, just quote Tony Sheldon from the Transport Workers Union. He said his union believed the Fair Work Act should be amended to force companies to make their internal finances confidentially available. They, and they say it's confidential. They, you know, they won't let it out. During negotiations, we as a union have been at a clear disadvantage in various negotiations where management was being deceptive and dishonest about their finances this weakens our right to bargain on behalf of our members and to seek the fair paying conditions that allows them to support their families. This against the background, I'll keep reminding you, there's no such thing as class war, by the way. Mm. Um, and Kate Carnell from the Australian Chamber of Commerce accused the unions of posturing, describing the proposal as unworkable. Um, that's a pretty... Unworkable? Yeah, pretty telling uh, response. Um, but then... The next day, <laughs> here it is, disaster if unions get data and uh, forcing employers to hand over sensitive financial data to unions would be a disaster for business because union bosses could not be trusted with the information, says Employment Minister Eric R. Betts. And on they go, and then several employers are dragged out also to... Uh, to attack it, saying this is a terrible attack, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. We have a right to keep things quiet, so the unions have no idea how much we're making, and we can. Uh, and also, of course, then if they, if they, if that information went to the unions, it might even get to the tax department. For God's sake, think of that. <laughs> so, I mean, that might the, be that'd be terrible, disastrous. They might have to pay what ten percent tax. They have to decide 2%. which set of books they actually give them. Is it, is it the, the real books or the tax books? All the special union books. That's right. <laughs> well, they could probably combine the tax and union books. I'm sure they're pretty so pretty similar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're making a making a big loss. <laughs> Such a loss. Such we'll a try, loss. Let's try and get on Auntie Jenny and see how we go. All right. Um, we're going to go out with the. We're just going to go to a track now. This is Eric Bogle with No Man's Land. This is a great song, by the way. It's one of my very favourite anti-war songs, and I want to thank Corey because I mentioned it to her yesterday, and she searched and found it because I've got a vinyl version, but I don't think it's suitable for on-air play. It's a bit crackly, but uh, thanks for this, Corey. Yes, and I hope our listeners enjoyed that. It's uh, one of the great anti-war songs, I think. Um, and just on that very theme, because that was our tribute to, uh, to Anzac Day from City Limits by Eric Bogle, um, the, just a, a nice piece out of the... Not a nice, but an awful piece, but it's out of the New York Times in the last couple of days. Um, to wage war in Yemen, Saudi Arabia is using F-15 fighter jets brought from Boeing. Pilots from the United Arab Emirates are flying Lockheed Martin F-16 to bomb both Yemen and Syria. Soon the Emirates are expected to complete a deal with General Atomics for a fleet of Predator drones to run spying missions in their neighbourhood. As the Middle East ascends into proxy wars, sectarian conflicts and battles against terrorist networks, countries in the region that have stockpiled US military hardware are now actually using it and wanting more. The result is a boom for US defence contractors looking for foreign business in an era of shrinking Pentagon budgets, but also the prospect of a dangerous new arms race in a region where the map of alliances has been sharply redrawn. Last week, defence industry officials told Congress they were expecting within days a request from Arab allies, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, Jordan and Egypt, fighting Islamic State to buy thousands of US-made missiles, bombs and other weapons, replenishing an arsenal that has been depleted over the past year.
Profits, profits, profits. Oh, this is what war's all about. The US has long put restrictions on the type of weapons US defence firm can sell to Arab nations, but because Israel and the Arab states are now in a de facto alliance against Iran, the Obama administration has been far more willing to allow the sale of advanced weapons in the Persian Gulf, with few public objections from Israel. Gulf countries do not represent a meaningful threat to Israel, but they do represent a meaningful counterbalance to Iran. Anthony Cordesman of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies said, "Isn't that a wonder? Isn't it wonderful to see war going so beautifully?" And I, and, th- I yeah. thought it was um, interesting that he mentioned the map of alliances because you know yes. we can talk about after World War One when they, you know, got the ruler out and just divided That's up that right. area regardless of what any of the people in the region actually. And at one stage, they were supplying Iraq with weapons, of, in fact, chemical weapons to um, to knock off Iran at the time and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when they went looking for them, they couldn't find them. They said, but they were here because we sold them to them. Yeah, but, but anyway, uh, they couldn't find them. But um, it does show that there's also a bit, it's a bit of a moving situation over there. We could find these current people they're selling to could become the enemy shortly, which happens so often over there. And uh, mm. you've, got to, you've got to go in again with weapons. Well, then you can sell more weapons. So sell more weapons? Yeah, it's good. It works sell well. more weapons? Yeah, yeah, it balances out. Yeah, it's like one of those... Um you know, like it's a scheme that the more you do it, the more, you know, it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Um, I don't know if they're ever going to sell anything peaceful over there. Oh, pardon? You know, <laughs> oh, what was that word? Reconstruction. <laughs> oh, so I got the sell bit. That's all right. <laughs> what was the other one? Peaceful. 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 Come on. Speaking of which, another interesting story That'd from the US. That definitely cut into profits. US President Barack Obama has told Congress he intends to remove Cuba from a US list of state sponsors of terrorism. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, huh. yeah. Is the US at the top of that list? No, no, no. I was about to say, I, I would I would advise Cuba, though, in my own little way, not to remove the US from its <laughs> list of terrorism because I think it should be right at the very top. Yeah. Have you ever seen a picture of all the US bases in the world? I mean, it looks like there's stars have, you know, fallen. You know, there's just so many, it's ridiculous. Ah, that's where I heard that word, peace. That's what it's all about, peace. That's where, ah, ah that was the word you said. Yes, that's it. Peace at the uh, yes, that, point that, of a gun. That's it, that's it. Well, war is peace, as they say. Yes, yes. Yeah, anyway, Auntie Jenny, we couldn't get onto it. No, no. Oh, well, that's just knocked off the first interview. When you said peace, maybe we're talking about pieces of land? Ah, uh, all that stuff, yeah. Well, that's what... Um, that's what Israel means by peace. We'll take that peace and that peace and that peace and that peace and that peace. And that exactly. Peace. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Very good. Look, we've, we haven't got Artie Jenny. Um, uh, just, just perhaps one. Oh, let's, well, while we're speaking of um, rich and poor, mm-hmm. um, on on the poverty Are side. Are you the rich or the poor? <laughs> don't need to answer that, I don't think. <laughs> Here I am at 3CR, for God's sake. <laughs> Princess Diana's will has been uploaded to the internet. Reveal- yes, revealing her final wishes and how her vast fortune was dispersed. The move is part of a government initiative that has digitised about 41 million wills, including those of old Winnie Churchill. Well, he's a good week for that because he's the bloke, of course, who sent our troops to the wrong place mm. on, on Anzac business. Diana well, was let's ki- hope he had his will a bit more in order than the yeah, whole Gallipoli campaign. Yeah, a bit of a diversion here, but I saw one of his relatives the other day saying that he was very sad after that. He felt sad that he'd had all those young men slaughtered. Oh, yeah. sad. Poor old Winnie, yeah. Diana was killed in her car, we know that. Her will instructed that a majority of her 40 million estate should go to her sons, William and Harry. Mm-hmm. The princes received inheritance on their respective 30th birthdays. William was given 19 million and Harry a bit more because he's you know more interest by that time. 
And he also received his mother's wedding dress where he, he could put a swastika on it and wear it, couldn't he? That's good because he does. He wears swastikas. Mm-hmm. William was given her engagement ring, which features an 18-carat sapphire that his wife now wears. So what a cheapskate. He gets $19 million, He doesn't even buy her a ring. He gives, him a, gives, a, gives a second-hand one. Yeah. What's that about? Anyway, that's well, it's about the rich getting richer. And uh, they also, of course, have the public purse to pull back on if they get into any trouble. Do your things. Yeah, so that's that. Let's play another Andy War song. All right. Um, we're going to go to... I'm oh, sorry, another another song about war. Yes. Yes. Um, this is uh, Jacob's Ladder, um, None of My Name, and it's by Chumbawamba, and this one's about the Iraq War. Okay, and on the line we have Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute. Richard is executive director of that body, and he um, he had an article in yesterday's Fin Review. He has a fortnightly article in the Fin Review, and yesterday was talking about subsidies to the mining industry and relating it to the crying poor by the West Australian government this week. Um, and you've also in the past written about coal heavily subsidised as well, Richard. You're, you're suggesting all these companies are actually falling back on the public purse somewhere along the line. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM and the time is 9.43 and we have Richard Dennis on the line. Yeah, but I'm sure Richard's, Richard probably has a good enough memory to remember when he was only 19. Um, but Richard, I, I'll truncate the question I asked last time because uh, <laughs> we didn't get to the end of it. We didn't get you at the end of it. Um, but you're suggesting that resource companies are fairly heavily subsidised by the public purse in this country. Oh, look, very much so. And, uh, you know, this is what the state government budget papers make very clear. We we spend billions of dollars, billions of dollars a year building the rail, the port, the roads, the electricity and the water infrastructure that, uh, that, that, that some of the world's biggest mining companies require. It's incredibly generous of us. And, um, you know, if, if it was any other industry, no one would doubt it was a subsidy. Mm. What do you make of public-private partnerships? Look, I think public-private partnerships uh, unfortunately have a pretty checkered history in Australia. The, the private usually does much better out of it than the public. But let's be clear, it's, it's fine for governments to spend money on roads. It's fine for money for, for the government to spend money on rail. The question is which ones? And, and governments that say they can't afford to invest in rail uh, for, for commuters in peak hour uh, are, are very happy to spend billions of dollars on, on, on rail for some of the world's biggest mining companies. Yeah, and indeed, in that in those situations, often those those railway lines, once the mine closes down, are totally redundant because they're really going nowhere at that point. Well, that's right. That's exactly what they'll be. They're not common use infrastructure that that, that you or I or indeed anyone uh, will be using in twenty years' time. They're they're often hundreds of kilometres long, connecting a hole in the ground to a port that's no longer useful. So, you know, of course we need to spend money on infrastructure. Uh, our population is growing very rapidly. Around four million people a decade uh, is population growth in Australia. Infrastructure is very very important, but there's a big difference between a train line in the Kimberley and, and, and a train line in Melbourne or Perth. Mm. Well, well, indeed, um, years and years ago, um, the government actually bought, paid for public infrastructure. They paid for the infrastructure you needed and they did it on long-term loans, uh, low-interest loans over the generations that benefited. And that, we still argue in this program that's the best way to provide infrastructure. Oh, look, most economists would agree with you, except, of course, the ones that work for the, uh, <laughs> for, right. for the banks that want to, want to finance them for the private sector. Um, you know, the, the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge was was built with with taxpayers' money. It didn't it didn't burden us. It it, it, it helped the 
imagine enormously, as, as did most of the roads that people are driving on today. And an argument, of course, that that also is that it means, and when the People's Committee, when the people, Committee for Melbourne was established, and there's one in Sydney as well, you often have the, the cowboys, the corporate cowboys, determining what infrastructure is required because of what they want, but not what might be best for the community. Oh, that's right. And, and when we read the contracts carefully, you'll find, for example, clauses uh, in some of the tollways built in Sydney that, that prohibit the state government from uh, from building rail or putting more buses on certain routes because the specific purpose of the contract was uh, to maximise the number of people driving down a particular road and paying a particular toll. So, you know, I just it's, it's very hard for people to, uh, well... But another way, people have been told so many times that governments, quote, can't afford to do things or indeed that it's irresponsible to borrow. But anyone that's ever bought a house has, by Joe Hockey's standards, uh, lived beyond their means and recklessly and irresponsibly borrowed money. Of course, most Australians think borrowing money to buy an asset such as a house is a very good idea. Yet, in our public debate, we no longer distinguish between government borrowing for infrastructure uh, and, and government borrowing for anything else. It's, it's all lumped in together, and it's suggested to us that all of it is irresponsible. The opposite is the case. Uh, yeah, and you had in the article yesterday, by the way, political leaders have a habit of exaggerating the benefits of the mining industry on their economics and budgets. Uh, could you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, look, uh, the, the purpose of my piece yesterday was, was, was multifaceted. Firstly, we just need to remember that the, the iron ore price at the moment is well above its historic average. The iron ore price isn't low. It's much higher than it was when Kevin Rudd was elected, for example. Yeah. But we've now got conservative governments at the West Australian and national level saying, oh, the fall of the iron ore price is putting pressure on the budget, so we're going to have to cut the pension. Well, again, iron ore prices are far higher than their historic average. So do you think what they'll increase saying, the pension? <laughs> well, I think they should, and I think they well, I think they should increase unemployment benefits first, which are very low by historic and international standards. And even the Business Council of Australia says that our our unemployment benefits are too low. Um, but I guess my point is they're they're trying to create not just a sense of crisis, but they're actually trying to blame the iron ore price. When really the reason our budget is in a little bit of trouble, not a big, not a big problem, I don't think, is because of massive tax cuts introduced by Peter Costello uh, in, in 2006. Uh, and indeed, because the West Australian government has spent so much subsidising its mining industry that it actually made it through the mining boom without ever making a surplus. So to turn around, to turn around now and blame the iron ore price rather than their own profligate subsidies uh, and, and then try and push the costs either onto other states or to poor people, it just seems a bit rich to me. Well, I mean, you know, uh, it's just, it's basically an ideological battle. You've got these people in power who think that we should have low tax, you know, low taxes, low services, and then the vast majority of the Australian people who thinks that we should have high tax, high services, and, you know, it's about the balance of forces, who's going to win in the end of the day. I mean, none of it, you know, I mean, none of this neoliberal ideology actually uh, makes sense from an economic point of view. It's, you know... Look, personally, I agree. But look, ideologies are, are very personal things. I don't actually mind, you know, Peter Costello's at least being honest. He's come out and said, look, I just want to pay less tax 
and I want to spend less money on services because that's the kind of guy I am. Yeah. I don't mind I don't mind neoliberals being honest. What frustrates me is uh, is their their ability to actually convince people that uh, it's not that we need to cut taxes because rich people want to pay less tax, but because we face some sort of economic crisis or that if we don't cut taxes, you know, terrible things will happen. So uh, I, I hate to say it, I think the neoliberals are, are much better at public debate uh, than progressives because their, their intellectual arguments are very weak, but most Australians believe them. Most Australians believe we're a high-debt country when we're actually a low-debt country. Mm. Most Australians believe we're a high-tax country when we're actually a low-tax low country. Okay. And yeah. most Australians believe that we can't afford to build the infrastructure that we need because the neoliberals have done such a good job you know, of, of, of making things up and repeating themselves. So, yeah, you're right, it's an ideological argument, but it, it's frustrating for me to see that the people who are winning it are actually relying on such weak evidence. Yes, tell a lie often enough. Uh, of course, there's also an irony, there's a couple of ironies here, but one irony is that the, to get a AAA rating, you have to not borrow, but you want the AAA rating to borrow at a cheaper rate, but once you borrow, you lose it. It's a, it goes around in circles. Oh, look, I, I agree. It, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It makes even less sense when you realise that the difference between being AAA or AA is actually so small. The fact the fact that you would impose billions of dollars worth of pain on your citizens to save millions of dollars in interest uh, makes no sense. Mm. But look, if you're a rating agency, you, you have to show volatility. You have to be changing people's ratings from time to time. Otherwise, people wouldn't pay attention to them. So, you know, the, 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 these, these ratings are, are farcical on many levels. And what most people perhaps don't realise is that you know, we, we might say a government is AAA or AA, and we might say a company is AAA or AA, but the standards for rating companies are entirely different from the standards for rating a state. There's no state government in Australia that's actually a higher risk uh, than any of the companies that people lend money to. But, you know, we, we, they don't want to describe corporate debt as, as, as B or C compared to public debt that's A. State governments aren't going to default in Australia. No. We're talking to Dr Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute. And De Richard, um, another irony I think turned up this week in terms of the, the mining companies, uh, Fortescue, which of course is Twitty's company. Um, Fortescue has said that the, the governments, uh, federal and West Australian governments, should intervene to ensure they get the best value from iron ore sales. Uh, they said the argument for government intervention was strengthened given the material in question was a state-owned resource and warned any attempt to interfere could result in a world of pain for the government, both legally and from a sub, etc. But it's, they say on one hand it's a, um, it's a resource and it has ripped, the bloke from Fortescue said, it has ripped the heart out of the industry. This is the falling iron ore price. Ripped the heart out of the suppliers and contractors. It has ripped the heart out of the communities and there was absolutely no winners out there. So I think there is an absolute issue here of public interest to try and ensure there is the maximum amount of value we can get, etc. So... When it suits them, they say the government owns the resource, but I, I don't quite recall them saying that during the resource tax debate, uh, Richard. Did I miss something? Oh, <laughs> yes, well, well spotted. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of hypocrisy in these debates, but, but broadly, I, I agree with Twiggy Forrest. I, I think that uh, letting, letting foreign-owned mining companies compete with each other to drive down the price that we get for selling our iron ore 
makes no economic sense. It certainly makes no uh, no, no sense from a national interest point of view. Um, there's a big difference between the economics of cafes competing to deliver sort of low-price, convenient coffee and iron ore companies who get to sell Australia's iron ore once and for all. We don't want to minimise the price that we get for our iron ore. We want to maximise it. So, look, broadly speaking, I agree with Twiggy Forrest. I, I, I think it highlights uh, the fundamental problems with the way that we've managed our natural resources, which is to sort of just hand them over to foreign-owned mining companies and say, look after us, would you? Well, you know, as we, 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 we've heard Rio and Tinto say, we're not here to look after you, we're here to look after our shareholders. We've heard them say that about the iron ore price. We've heard them say that about tax at the recent Senate inquiry. I think Australians just need to grow up and Australian political leaders need to grow up and realise that it's their job to represent Australia's national interest, not, not BHP or Rio Tinto's. And um, if you use your cafe example anyway, I mean, say there's a cafe right out in the middle of nowhere and there's no other coffee, you know, they can charge $8 a cup. They can be open for three day, you know, three hours a day, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, that's capitalism. Like the iron ore is the same. There's, you know, supply and demand. There's, there's a limited amount of iron ore. It's in Australia. It can't be anywhere else. You know, it's within the land. They can charge what they want. Well, they can, but at the moment they're competing with each other to charge as little as possible, and that's that's they think that's good strategy in the long term. They, they're trying to grow their market share, uh, but again, they only get to sell our iron ore once, mm. whereas you can always show up the next day and and, and sell some more coffee. So, uh, but look, you know, you, you're right. People with monopoly power can extract a higher price. Mm. That's why that's why OPEC was formed. Because the countries that owned all the oil thought, why are we letting foreign companies sell our oil for the lowest price they can? OPEC was formed to increase the well-being of the countries that owned the oil. It worked a treat. We've obviously gone the opposite approach. While while OPEC was designed to to eke it out slowly and maximise the price, we've decided the way to get rich is to dig it up as fast as we can and sell it as cheap as we can. Uh, let's just say one of us is completely wrong. <laughs> yes, I don't know which one, too. Just, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but um, I to, to fossil fuel, I know you've written about that as well. Um, the, the Institute for Public Affairs, and I always wonder why they have public in their name at all, um, but the Institute for Public Affairs, the Alan Moron from there, continually writes that coal has to, has to suffer along, or fossil fuel generally has to struggle along without any help while renewables are so heavily subsidised and completely, um, completely non uneconomic, um, can you comment on that? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a couple of problems with that argument. The, the first one is that that we give free waste disposal services to coal-fired power stations. That is, we let them dump billions of tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere and we don't charge them for it. Uh, that's the biggest subsidy we give them. Uh, if, if you knock your house down, you have to pay... for the waste disposal. Where where does the bricks and the rubble go? You pay for waste disposal. Well, coal-fired power stations get free waste disposal, and that's an enormous subsidy. The the other subsidies, well, I've I've talked about some of them already. We we, we build their railway lines. We build their ports. uh, We provide all sorts of specific infrastructure just for them. 
that's a subsidy. Uh, and, you know, the West Australians, come back to my, my friends in the West Australia at the moment, uh, they, they spend $500 million a year subsidising the consumption of coal-fired electricity. So, so look, that... it's just, it's simply nonsense to suggest we don't subsidise the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we do. But also, economically, usually you would, you would tax something that you want to discourage and you would subsidise something you want to encourage. Well, there's lots of reasons we want to encourage renewables. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. Uh, but there's no economic reason why we should subsidise a, a pollutant like coal-fired power stations. Mm. And yeah. what about the um, billion dollars in research fund for um, uh, carbon capture and storage, speaking of waste disposal? That seems a bit much. Oh, that's right. Oh, look, I could go on. Oh, we could go all day on these subsidies. So, uh, yes, there's subsidised research and development for so-called clean coal. Uh, there's uh, there's subsidised uh, geological surveys. We've got a whole government department dedicated to finding iron ore and coal, so that when once the taxpayer finds it, other people can get the profits from extracting it. Uh, we have accelerated depreciation uh, for the uh, you know they, they get to write off the cost of building their mines quicker than a manufacturer does. Uh, you know, they get access to a diesel fuel rebate, which saves them billions of dollars a year in fuel tax compared to what you and I pay. So, look, I come back to what I said before, you've got to hand it to the neoliberals. They're very good at playing a weak hand. Exactly, and uh, we could go on all day because tomorrow, of course, the government will announce the first winners in its emissions reduction fund auctions, paying polluters not to pollute, but uh, that's for another day now. Richard, we'll come back to that, though, with you because I know you've got an interest in that as well. Um, Look forward to it. We're out of time, but look, thanks for your time this morning, and we'll, we'll do it again. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, and sorry for the weather in the background. It's pretty windy here in Canberra. <laughs> yeah, with, Melbourne's pretty good today. <laughs> Just let you know that. <laughs> okay, thanks, thanks Richard. Richard uh, Dennis there, who's the, um, as I said, the Executive Director of the Australia Institute. Next week, we are hoping to look at um, green cities and how you get green and sustainable. A listener wrote in and asked us, could we do something on that? And we'll, we'll try and get a panel together next week. No promises, but it's a Well, fifth, Kevin, my last week, name's so. Green. That's true, that's true. So you're part of a green city, obviously. You are the green city. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to go. Joe's going to come rushing in the door any minute abusing us. Yes, always, always. Thanks, Corey. We don't deserve buttons. this. Thanks for choosing wonderful music. Yep. And thanks, Kev. Okay. Next week. you know, doing all the stuff. Next week. All right. Um, we're going to go out with uh, the Doug Anthony All Stars with Warsong. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au